God everybody. Mark chapter 9. I was reading the story, true story of a little boy when he was five years old, little Al who grew up in London, was uh, cheery. They said he was a chubby little delightful boy, didn't seem to have a care in the world. But something changed him drastically. Five years of age, his dad came into the bedroom one day when he was playing. His dad often worked at home. He was an importer of, say, of items and would be sailing, uh, selling those items so he could work out of the house. And he gave his boy an envelope and he said, inside is a letter I want you to take down the street, two blocks down is the police station, take it to the police chief and hand it to him and wait for the police chief's response. So the little boy, eager to please his dad, went running as fast as he could down that block and a half, two blocks, got to the police station, came in and said he needs to see the police chief. Police chief came, he gave him the envelope and he said, my dad said I'm supposed to wait for you and, until you open it and read it. And so the police chief opened it, read the note and said, okay, come with me. Took a little boy down through some doors, down a hallway to an open cell and said, get in. The little boy went in not knowing what this was about and the police chief locked the door or closed the door, locked it and walked out. And so this little five-year-old boy is locked in jail, doesn't know why and starts screaming and screaming and screaming. The police chief didn't come back because in the note from the father it said, don't let him out for 10 minutes. Went back at the 10-minute mark, opened the door, and that kid shot out of there. Ran home, ran, got home, went up to his bedroom, and sobbing, sobbing, sobbing. People who knew this boy and who wrote some of his biographies said he was never the same after that. He was a boy who became very fidgety. He became very nervous. He developed a lot of different phobias. He was afraid of height, afraid of always what's around the next corner. Had a tremendous fear of one type of person. Do you want to guess? police officers. And anyway, you probably have heard about this guy. He ended up becoming what was called the master of terror in films and in books. Alfred Hitchcock, yeah. And he never found out why his dad did that. Never knew it, but boy, did it make an impression upon him. Sometimes, and I think some of you may have had those things, where all of a sudden you have a moment where you're terrified or something fearful comes, and man, does it impact you. And it really makes an impression. Some of us, though, we, we kind of, you know, we put down any type of fearful situations and we're going to be macho. But I tell you, I'm not macho around this building. If I hear a noise, I'm going the other direction. I'm not doing what the movies always do. They go, to the, go towards the place. And me, somebody was just saying here a couple weeks ago, they said they were in the building here and it got kind of dark and they were kind of spooked and they said they weren't sure what to do. And I said, here's what I do. I go in my office and lock the door and wait until somebody else shows up. Fear at times can manipulate. Uh, hey, do politicians ever use fear? Oh, yeah, we're going to see it as the months come up. We're going to see like uh, you know, the, the typical ad, all in black and white, and here you got the picture of a certain candidate, and if we elect him, all the prisoners will be let free, all of the guns will disappear, the environment will collapse, he'll get us into nuclear war, you know, the world's going to be destroyed by pollution, and then all that visage always changes, and in color they show their candidate, and if you elect him, everything's going to be... Absolutely great. Uh, does advertising companies ever use fear to sell their product? Fear of your identity theft, fear of home burglaries, and, and some of those items are good things to have. Is fear sometimes a good tool of communication? Yes or no? Is, uh, uh, should we have any healthy fears? 
Is there, is there a good, healthy fear? Yeah, there is. Okay, you want to teach your kids to fear the cars driving by out in the street. You, it's a good fear of stale, outdated, or smelly food. That's a good fear. Okay? Jesus is going to talk about one area of fear that is the most important. And he speaks about it with effectiveness. And it is about that experience that could be the most devastating, horrible experience of anybody. And somebody mentioned it here. It's hell. Jesus talks about it multiple times. In fact, we know Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. We know he talked more about hell than he did heaven. And in Mark chapter 9, in the course of the subject that, he's, that we're dealing with this evening, he's going to talk about hell. Now, to get the whole setting, the topic, and where he's focusing, that isn't where he started the conversation. The conversation wasn't headed for, let me tell you about hell. The conversation started about, let me tell you how to be a great person. Do you remember the setting of Mark chapter 9? Jesus and his disciples had been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. They come down. Some, some of his disciples couldn't cast out the demons. Jesus cast out the demons, rebukes his disciples, tells them that they didn't have faith, that it should have been prayer and fasting, and then they leave. And as they're starting to work their way slowly towards Jerusalem over the next few weeks, this is some of that training time that Jesus has with his disciples where he doesn't ignore the, public, the uh, populace as, at large, but he's going to focus primarily preparing his 12 for his departure. And he starts making comments to them in the context of one main idea in the second half of Mark chapter 9. As they are going along, the disciples are having an argument amongst themselves, and they are arguing over one topic. Which of them is to be the greatest in the kingdom? Now, you understand, and I understand, we talked about this last week, probably because some were on the mount with Jesus, some are in the inner circle, some failed in, in uh, casting out the demons. So they're arguing amongst themselves, and it's a debate. It is, a, according to the Greek language, it is a vicious argument that they're having. In that whole context, Jesus is going to make a lot of comments. But let me just see if I can keep the flow in one section altogether. Jesus is talking in this whole section about how to become a great person in his eyes. You and I can be great in the eyes of our family. We can be great in the eyes of our bank account. We can be great in the eyes of our fellow employees. We can be great in the eyes of one another. But we can fool each other. We can, we can you know, have wrong priorities. Jesus is going to say to you and me, here's how you and I can be great in his estimation. Number one, we put it down this way. We need to, great people are those who serve God with the same devotion that Jesus Christ had in serving God. They serve God with the same devotion Jesus Christ had in serving God. And I'm taking that from verses 30, 31, 32, where prior to that discussion and argument and his statement about greatness and humility, Jesus makes the comment about, I'm going to die, I'm going to Jerusalem. And he's preparing his disciples. He's informing them. And as he's informing them, I think he is also setting the stage for an illustration of what real greatness is. That Jesus Christ, being great in this fashion, he was going to make a personal sacrifice. And he was going to do it even though others didn't understand. We read in verse 31, the Son of Man is to be delivered in the hands of them that they kill him. And after he is killed, he shall rise again. But they understood not. Greatness is serving God, doing whatever God wants, even if it's calls for great sacrifice, even if other people don't understand. We talked about that last week. Let's go into the second session. 
section of the passage. They come into the house and he says, what were you arguing about or disputing? They held their peace for by the way they were disputing among themselves who should be the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve. If any man desires to be first, the same shall be last and the servant of all. So we would make this observation. Great people are those who serve others the way Jesus was willing to serve others. To serve others the way Jesus was willing to serve others. I am reminded of Matthew 20. Verse 28, I think it is, where it says, The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life a ransom for many. The point is, Jesus Christ came to serve. Jesus Christ did exactly what he's telling them. If you desire to be first, the same shall be last. You put others first. We talked about that last week. Number three, great people are those who value others the way Jesus values them. Value others the way Jesus valued them. That takes us into this section where he says in verse 36, He took a child and set the child in the midst of them, that is the disciples. And when he had taken him in his arms, the child, he said unto them, the disciples, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receives me, and whosoever shall receive me receives not me, but him that sent me. And his point is, receiving the little children is the idea in that culture of putting value on somebody that wasn't valued. In that society, as we talked last week, little children were not, were not considered real priorities. They were, they were expendable. They didn't live, most of them. Uh, lots of them didn't live because of the natality rate, mortality rate. And so they, they were considered on sub-level or ser- the level of servants. And so Jesus says, receive them, welcome them, uh, meet their needs, uh, let them know how, how, uh, how valued they are in your eyes, the way that that I have done that with you, the way I've done that with those who are, are put away by society. I valued lepers, I have valued the sick, I have valued the poor, the needy, where others in the society and the other leaders, they have put them away. They've pushed the widows away, they've pushed the crowds away. And so we're supposed to, if we're going to be great, value others the way that Jesus valued them. We talked more about that. Let's pick up where we were last week. Number four. Great people are those who encourage others who serve Christ the right way. They encourage others who serve Christ the right way. We were in the middle of this conversation, verse 38. Then John answered him and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he follows not us. We forbade him because he follows not us. Now, John is listening to Jesus making comment about what real greatness is and receiving anybody and everybody. In John's mind, there was some type of condition here for receiving people. There was some type of exception for receiving people. And so he is going to bring that up, expecting Jesus to respond in a positive, And Jesus doesn't. Jesus rebukes him. And so he tells John, who is you know, criticizing somebody who is doing something that the disciples couldn't do. That's the irony of it. And John is saying he's not following us when he should have said he's not following you, Jesus. But he's not following us as if John is a part of the standard that, uh, that everybody is supposed to be associated with. Otherwise, they aren't good in ministry. And so the two thoughts that came to my mind is this. How do we know if someone is serving right? How do we know if there is an individual where Jesus says, hey, 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 you see somebody else serving, forbid him not, for there is no man which should do a miracle in my name that can slightly speak evil of me, for he that is not against us is on our part. How do we take that where there are other texts in the New Testament that tell us that if we see somebody that is doing wrong, admonish them once and then pull away from them, mark them, avoid them. 
So is there a conflict in Scripture? I don't think there's a conflict. But I do think we have to understand at this time when Jesus is speaking, Jesus is making it very clear this guy gives every indication that this guy is is absolutely, positively doing ministry the right way for several reasons. At that time, at this moment, that is happening. This man is doing what Jesus has commanded the disciples to do. Go out and cast out demons. He gave that command to his disciples earlier. He even sent out the 70 to do that. This man is doing it in, and this is the key, key phrase, the man is doing it in Jesus' name. On representing Jesus. Remember at this moment, how many people in ministry in Jerusalem, in Jewish culture, are flocking and saying, we're going under the banner of Jesus Christ. That's not the norm at that moment. The norm at that moment is the, uh, the theological structure of that time is not for Jesus. What is the religious perception at that time? It is against Jesus. The official position is anti-Jesus in his ministry. So this man is putting himself in a precarious spot because it's already well known that the stamp of approval has not gone upon Jesus. In fact, the stamp from the clergy of that time has said Jesus is casting out demons by the power of... Beelzebub. So at this moment, for this man to do this type of ministry, he is putting himself on the line. It is very clear that he is, he is doing ministry the right way. Now, as time goes on in history, okay, do other people claim to do miraculous deeds in the name of Jesus? And do they violate Scripture? Jesus even told us that in the last days some shall say, Have not we prophesied? Have not we cast out demons in thy name? And he shall say, Depart from me. I never knew you. So what, what happens is from the time of Mark 9 going until our day, is it now, is there more of an acceptance of Jesus in our culture compared to the Jewish culture of that day? Hello? Yeah, it is. It is. Okay. Is there a lot of things done in the name of Jesus that are done in a heretical sense? Yes. So what is our standard today? Just that somebody is doing a miracle? Just that they're calling upon Jesus and using his name for whatever they're doing? Isn't it true we have much more scripture? That we have much more doctrine elaborated to give us a standard of determining somebody doing ministry the right way? Yes? No? Okay, but as we take the determination, you and I need to be careful with this, okay? We know that there is more, um, I'm going to use the word, uh, try to use, there, is, there are greater credentials for today than there were back then because we have greater revelation for people who are doing ministry. There's a, there's a lot more. And yet at the same time, is it still a tendency and a danger for us to say, we don't want nothing to do with that person because they're not part of our group. Is that still a problem? It is. It is. Okay, that's, that's some of this. And so let's make this observation, okay? When we say great people are those who encourage others who serve Christ the right way, when we examine, when we look at somebody's ministry and we say, hey, listen, 
are they doing ministry uh, the right way? They may not be doing it the same way I'm doing it, but that doesn't mean that I'm right and they're wrong. You want to agree with that or disagree? Can people do ministry different than we do? Yes. And can they still be honoring the Lord? Yes, they can. In fact, Paul says some people preach out of envy and some people preach for other reasons. But I'm going to be thankful that the Word of God is being out there as long as it's being being presented in truth, without corruption, without, uh, without perversion. Then Paul was saying in Philippians 1, I'm thankful for that. They may not totally agree with me in the way we would do things or associate with me, but that's okay. That's okay. They're not our enemies. And I don't have to do what everybody else says as far as procedure and methodology as long as I'm not violating the Word of God. And so we look and say, we've got to be careful on our view of discouraging people from ministry. So let's talk about how to encourage someone who is serving right. How do we do that? Well, according to this text, he says, okay, that whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, verily I say he shall not lose his reward. Uh, What he's saying to me and to you is this. If somebody is ministering properly, we shouldn't discourage them. We shouldn't stop them just because maybe they don't have the same standard for their service as far as attire. Maybe they don't have the same standard, a, a, a chosen standard, a standard that, that in application, um, the standard, maybe, maybe they don't use the same size pulpit. Maybe they, maybe they don't insist on wearing a tie on a Wednesday night. Okay? Maybe, they, maybe in their service, they hold their service at a different time than we do, a different night of the week. That's fine. There's nothing, there's, there's nothing biblical about that, even though I know some make a great deal that if you don't have a church service on a Wednesday night, you can't be right with God. Well, what if they're doing a Bible study on a Monday night? What if they're doing it on a... Well, you know, where, where did that personal standard become the standard for everybody? And so when we look at it, we say, okay, what do we do when we find somebody who's ministering? And they're ministering effectively. Uh, I shouldn't say effectively. They're ministering properly, the right way, trying to get out the name of Jesus Christ and promote Christ. How do we encourage them? Well, we know we're not supposed to stop them. We're not supposed to say, hey, unless you do it the way I'm doing it, you're wrong. That we're not supposed to do. And Jesus gave a really simple illustration. If you give them a what? A cup of... Okay, now put that in Bible terminology. What's that look like today? What, what type of thing is giving somebody a cup of water? Let, let, let's pick up, let's, let's say, here comes the itinerant guy preaching in Bible days. In Bible days, itinerant guy, what would he be in, be in need of? He'd be in need of clothing or shelter or water. He's traveling. So don't, don't discourage the person, but encourage him by your cup of water. May not be, that's maybe, you can't do anymore, but give him a cup of water. What are you saying to him by giving him the cup of water? I'm with you. I'm, I'm behind you. So he is saying in the essence of whatever it is culturally wise, wherever, however it fits with what we can do, doing something little that expresses to that person that we're not against you, you, know, we're, we're, you know, if we can help you, if we can encourage you, if we can just be somewhat supportive. Oh, by the way, by that same token, what did, what did we read in John? That if somebody comes and does not believe Christ, don't even bid him 
God's speed. Don't even let them come in your house. Those little areas of hospitality. He's saying do something that's hospitable. Do something that is encouraging to the individual. Do something that is um, what, concrete. Something like give them a cup of water. Something that is a real act of encouragement. Today. Let's bring it to modern day. What could be a simple, small, insignificant act of encouragement that you could have towards one of our missionaries, let's say? What could be a cup of water that would refresh their hearts? An email. An email. email, A simple email. A note. A card of thanks for somebody who has ministered and labored and done something, you know, in, in ministry of teaching your kids. Teaching grandkids. We even put that, that little envelope in the, or that little card in the bulletin listing off who helps. With the idea that we should give cups of water to others who have ministered. Just to let them know we're, we're for you, we're behind you. And he makes the comment with this. He says those little insignificant gestures God does not overlook. Those moments of, of encouragement. By the way, in its context, this is what great people do. Great people in the eyes of Christ do little things. Little things that will encourage and benefit others. Can we go on with, this, with the text? Great people, number five, are those who are careful not to stumble other believers. They're careful not to stumble other believers. Keep the context going. Jesus has just been talking here. Okay? And now there's a shift. I think there's a clear shift, especially in Matthew. It's clearly portrayed. Whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me. Now he has shifted it. By putting the believe in me has shifted it from a physical child to a spiritual child. He is saying, now we're talking about those who are young in the Lord, okay? Whosoever shall stumble. And he's going to make this clear. This idea of offend is to cause a younger believer to fall into sin. To walk away from the Lord. To go astray. You trip them up. The whosoever tells you and me this one thought. Any of us could do it. Any of us could stumble somebody and cause them to give up. How do you do that? Well, in the context, that idea of arguing over who should be noticed, who should be the greatest, and some young Christian is watching you sit there and argue over position, over prominence, over acknowledgement, over power in a church, that could stumble somebody. Somebody could be stumbled who's trying to serve the Lord, and you're telling them unless they do it the same way you do it, they can't serve the Lord. That could stumble somebody. Um, Later on, he's talking about how if your hand, your eye, your foot offend you, cut it off. If by your lifestyle, you are given an example of doing ungodly things, you could stumble somebody who's young in the Lord. And so he's talking to his disciples. He is warning them that these you disciples need to be careful that you don't stumble younger Christians. This makes perfect sense to me. Why is he telling the 12 right now that they better be careful in the future not to stumble younger Christians? They're going to be in charge. In a matter of weeks and months, they're going to be the examples. They're going to be the pattern setters. They're going to be the ones that people are going to want to follow. And Jesus goes on, he makes these comments to them. He says, it is better for that person who stumbles somebody. It is better that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. We understand that picture. 
you take that big roll, that, that circular stone with the hole in the middle that was used to grind out the different wheats, the oats, and you tie it around your neck, and you tie it around that stone, and you get cast in the sea. You're only going one direction. You're going down. You're drowning. And again, every type of death is, could be a, a horrible death in some people's eyes. But in that Jewish culture, drowning was exceptionally looked at as being ooh, one of the most horrible situations that could possibly happen. And so what Jesus is doing is he's telling these disciples, hey, listen. He goes on, he says, that it, that it is better than this to happen, that if your hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for you to be, enter into life maimed than having two hands go into hell. Holy time out. He has just shifted gears. He has just talked about greatness, but there could be judgment if you, st- if you stumble somebody. And now he's gone from there to talking about going to hell. Why does he bring that up? His 12 aren't going to hell. Are they? Are they all going to heaven? No. Is there at least one in the 12 that we know is going to stumble others and putting self above serving others and wants greatness via possessions? We all know who I'm talking about, right? So he just ties this right in. Now, the other time that he speaks this, he is definitely speaking to a crowd. Okay, on another occasion that one of the synoptics have. But in this occasion, he's talking, and he is going to be targeting the idea that somebody can come along, whosoever. Somebody can be coming along and, and following Jesus and still not be born again. Do you think that's still possible today? Could there be somebody who is listening, following the crowd, sitting in church, and still not be born again? Yeah, so Jesus talks about from that idea of you better be careful of not being judged by God by stumbling somebody if you're a leader to just, by the way, you just better be careful not to be judged by God ever. And then he goes on, he talks about how that great judgment that, that, is, for, that is against people, and he brings in hell. And again, there is application. There's one in his audience that, he's, that for sure needs to hear this. But he opens up this entire paragraph. And he talks about how if your hand offends thee, cut off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed than having two hands go into hell. Into the fire that shall never be quenched. Where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. It is interesting to note certain phrases are repeated by Jesus Christ in description of hell. Where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. If your foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched if your eye offend thee pluck it out it is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes than be cast into the hell fire where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched do you get the sense from Jesus that he really believes there's a hell okay he believes it he believes in a hell and by the way, when he's using the word, and Mark does this for sure. Mark is using Gehenna. He's using that, that, uh, that word that is the Valley of Hinnom. You all know this. The Valley of Hinnom in the old ancient uh, city of Jerusalem was a valley just outside of Jerusalem. Okay? And it was used, do you remember in ancient, in ancient kings what they used the valley for? Anybody remember? Pardon me? Okay, it was when Jesus was on the scene. We're going before that. Okay, go back even further. It explains why it became the garbage dump. Originally, back in the middle of the kings, do you remember what they used it for? Sacrifice. Per- people sacrifices. 
under Ahaz and his son Manasseh. This was the place they do human sacrifices. So then when uh, jo- Josiah came and did the reforms, he delegated that area never to be used except for a garbage dump. So that this, it, it was as if this land was cursed. Okay, And so Jesus is using it. It's that perpetual dump. We've described that before, where the worm is and the snakes and the rats and all that garbage that you and I get grossed out. But Jesus really believes this is a real place. Jesus, in his description of this hell, as he's talking to his disciples, and he's talking to one who's unsaved, he's talking to others and trying to get this lodged in their brain that this is real. Okay, He believes, this, this is a thought for the modern world, Jesus believes some people would end up in hell. He fully believes that. He's persuaded some people will end up in hell. Jesus believes hell is a place of pain. How many times does he refer to it as fire in this context? Several times. In fact, what does he say about the fire? The fire is not quenched. You know, he repeats that. So he taught that hell was never ceasing. Never ceasing. He taught that hell was a place without hope or without escape. Jesus taught that this was something to fear. This is a healthy fear. The fear of hell. Where he is speaking so, so clearly about it. To his disciples. That he wants to... I don't use it tongue in cheek, but, but appropriately. He wants to scare Judas out of his decisions. Up to this point. Judas, what you do in this life. Nothing you do in this life. Nothing is worth putting yourself into hell for all eternity. Nothing you might gain in this life is, is, is worth that exchange. And he's so clear about it. He's just so adamant about it. In fact, to Jesus, hell was something he needed to warn others about. Now, then the big question should be right away. If Jesus believed he needed to warn others about hell, then what? Then we should too then we should too. I mean, just by, by nature of that whole, that whole idea. Well, Jesus makes the comment that throws a lot of people, if your foot is going to cause you to make bad decisions, if your eye is going to cause you to make bad spiritual decisions, if your, what does he say, your foot, your eye, your hand, if they cause you to make bad decisions, what does he tell the people to do? Cut them off or... Pluck it out. Okay, we, there are some people, there are some teachers, there are some ascetics that over the history have said, okay, that's what we're going to do. We're going to maim ourselves. It's interesting to remember that according to the book of, of the law, that it was clearly stated in the book of the law, you can look it up later on, Deuteronomy 14.1 and 23.1. In the book of Deuteronomy 14.1, 23.1, any type of physical mutilation to your body was... It was forbidden. So is Jesus talking about an actual physical mutilation when the law says you shouldn't do it? No. What's he talking about? He's using hyperbole. He's using not a unique phrase in ancient culture. This wasn't just the only time in ancient writings that this idea of cutting off a hand or plucking out an eye. It, it was in other ancient writings, there was the idea of doing something drastic rather than continued in a, in a certain decision or a certain pattern or a certain lifestyle. Take a drastic measure. Do something. And so Jesus is saying to these individuals, when it comes to your eternal state, 
Do whatever is drastic so you can avoid hell and enter into the kingdom. So he's given the contrast. Can we broaden it by just saying, okay, how did that apply to the other 11? Uh, The simple application is is clear to all of us in this text that if we want to just fill in number six going this way, great people are those who understand the seriousness of sinning against God. Great people understand the seriousness of sinning against a, a holy God. Sinful choices can keep an individual out of the kingdom of God and cast them into hell. Sinful choices can threaten our fellowship with God Almighty. Sinful choices create a, put us in a spot where we are opposing God Almighty, where we are an antagonist to Him. Sinful choices, can they affect believers who are on their way to heaven? But can we still make sinful choices that would threaten our effectiveness for the Lord Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Absolutely. And in this context and in this passage, great people, they understand the seriousness of sin. They understand there is no compromise with personal sin. They understand that there is not, there is not to be any more amount of toleration of making bad choices that are threatening. There, there isn't any amount of cursing that is acceptable in God's eyes. There isn't any amount of drunkenness that is acceptable in God's eyes. There isn't any amount of bad, ugly, sexual, dirty humor that is acceptable in God's eyes. There is no amount of gossip that is acceptable in God's eyes. There is no amount of adultery acceptable in God's eyes. There's none. And if we're struggling with with gossip or envy or jealousy, or if we're struggling with an addiction or a habit or hanging around someplace or doing something, what are we supposed to do? We take drastic measures because we realize the seriousness of sin. That sin can destroy, it can corrupt, it can stumble other individuals. And we do whatever it is that is needed to stop, to say that's out of my life. And in this context, Jesus is just basically saying nothing in this life is worth losing God's favor. Nothing. There is nothing that we can get from this world. There is nothing that we can, no pleasure, no possession, that is worth risking God's favor upon our life. There's nothing at all. There is, as Jesus is saying, there is no level of toleration to giving in to sin. Now, that's what great people understand. Great people understand I need to serve the way Jesus served. I need to serve others the way Jesus served. I need to value other people. I I need to not be a stumbling block. I need to make sure that I understand the seriousness of sin, personal holiness. Let's give you the number seven. Great people are those who live at peace who live at peace with other saints. He, he takes us right back into the disciples' laps, right after he talks about this idea of, of offending, this idea of the seriousness of sin. He plumps us right back into where they were at. And he makes these comments at the end of this passage that are, by the way, only in the Gospel of Mark. But they are some of the most confusing two verses. If, if you want to read confusion, read commentaries. 
It is amazing how much confusion there is on this text where it says in verse 49 and 50, For everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, wherewith will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Confusing text. Do I fully understand it? Probably not. Do you? Probably better than I do. But it's a confusing passage because it's, it takes and says, okay, how does that tie to what he's just said? What about fire and salt? How does it all tie together? And was Jesus just all of a sudden rambling thoughts? And you understand some things, how they could tie together. Fire, because he just mentioned the fire of hell. When there was sacrifices, there was fire in, you know, to some degree to the sacrifices. But all the sacrifices made had to be salted according to the book of Numbers or in Leviticus, Leviticus that they had to put some salt there. And let's start with that which is the most obvious when you're in a complicated text start with the most obvious and clearest simplest truth that is there well the most obvious simple truth is the end of the passage that we're supposed to according to the disciples they're supposed to have what let's take the most obvious the one that's the clearest and simplest so they have peace with one another why is that so clear in this text because what were they arguing about? Who's going to be the greatest? They were in argument. He says, stop it. Stop it. You're supposed to be people who are, who are living at peace with one another. You're supposed to be my followers. And my followers can't even get along. And if my followers can't get along, what is that going to do to the babies that come afterwards? The young saints when they see the disputing, when they see that you're antagonistic to somebody who doesn't do it the way you do it or doesn't hang around you or you're not the standard. What a, be at peace with one another. Be at shalom. Have a unity within yourselves. Which, by the way, they're going to get this and from here on out, they, ne they never have a problem. Right? Wrong? They're going to have this problem all the way up to the night that Jesus dies. They don't even want to wash one another's feet because they are arguing over who is the... And so Jesus gives them the simple, most profound truth. You have to work out living at peace with one another. This is where greatness is. Greatness is starting with where it's not about you. It's not about you getting your way or you being acknowledged. It's about you working as a team for the glory of Christ. And by the way, I'll remind you, according to 1 Corinthians 11, I'm, I'm danger, getting dangerous because I'm off the cuff here. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about the idea there must be divisions amongst you so that some of you can be proven to be mature. And I'm paraphrasing the text. Okay, that this division, difficulties, conflicts will bring the cream of the crop to the very top. And so he says, I, I want you to be the cream of the crop. Now, how do these other phrases work in here? Uh, well, they, they are already supposed to have sacrificed their lives for Christ. And so that idea of salting their life of sacrifice, that, that would make sense. Salt is a good thing, and he's already said to them, you are the what of the world? You're the salt. And is it possible for salt in those days, is it possible for salt to lose its effectiveness? Yes, very much so. And so salt is supposed to preserve, it's to purify, it's supposed to make things more palatable. We understand all that. And so talking to the disciples and saying, guys, you're supposed to be at peace with one another. You say you're serving me. 
Well then, be salt with one another. Preserve, purify one another. Don't argue with each other. Help one another. And you know what's going to happen? You're all going to be salted with fire. You're all going to have problems. You're going to have difficulties. You're going to have the fires of persecution come against you. And that's when you need one another to help you to become as great as you could be. But it won't happen if you're in conflict. It won't happen if you're all about serving self. It won't happen if you are thinking about, okay, you know, my acknowledgement. He says it's got to be other-mindedness. It's got to be purity. And when some of you fall, you be salt one to another and you help pull up. And by the way, will some of them fall? Won't Peter deny three times in a matter of weeks? And he's not the only one. So did they all. And so you're supposed to minister to each other and help one another. It can only happen if there's peace. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't confront. That's part of peace. It shouldn't mean that we shouldn't, you know, rebuke when it's needed. That's part of peace. But this is greatness. Greatness when it's, when it's calling for us to be challenged. Challenged to do service beyond our capabilities and our abilities and our desires. Service that calls us to give up our own recognition. Service that calls us to be very careful about other people and how we affect them. Service that says that what we need to do is be pure. There are some good fears in this world. The fear of sin, that's good. The fear of offending others, that's good. The fear of disappointing God, that's a good fear. So with that in mind, if we want to be great, let's let those phobias, those healthy, pure phobias, convince us to strive towards greatness. Father, I pray, help me and help my friends, not just to talk about this, but to actually live it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.